he was I was in one side of the church, he was on the other side. But this was during the sermon and we were having an argument on our phones. Privilege, and I'm joined by Takudzwa Bistan. Taku and I had a privilege of attending peace, practical evangelism, and Adventist Christian Education Center training missionary school here in the North of England Conference, where we had the privilege of spending the four months together in the same house. And what particular stood out for me during the four months was the passion, the deep, the earnest desire. The Taku developed for the work of medical missionary. But currently, Taku is working as a canvasser here, as a co porter here in the West Midland regions. And the passion and the zeal that he has to see the work come to an end is contagious. But today, we sit down to talk about perhaps something that is not really spoken of. And it's really important because. God has distinguished the two. It's the topic dealing with the sacred and the common and the combination of the two. Hi, and welcome to the Deep Podcast. A Bible-based show to bring deliverance through real-life experiences, to bring enlightened of biblical topics, and to evangelize the people for the kingdom of God. Our greatest desire is that you will be inspired, encouraged, and develop a love for God and His Word. the show. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord which he commanded them not. And they went out a fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. So here we're introduced to Nadab and Abihu. We know these characters from Exodus. And here we see that they offered a fire before God, that if a fire that God hadn't commanded, and as a result of their disobedience, a fire comes from the Lord and devours them and they die before the Lord. So we're in Leviticus chapter 10. Yes. And the children of Israel have left Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. They get to Mount Sinai and in Exodus 20, God comes and speaks to them about to give them the Ten Commandments with the fire and the lightning. And they kind of reject him and then they send Moses to go to the mountain. And from really Genesis 25, God has given Moses the blueprint of this thing called the sanctuary. Hmm. He's given the instruction. Did these guys not any better? I think they would have. Uh, in Exodus 25, the, in Exodus chapter 25, we see that the sanctuary was God's idea. 
that God said, let them make me a sanctuary that, that I might dwell among them. That was his purpose. Mm. God wanted to dwell among the people. But also God directed everything in related to the sanctuary. We see in that chapter that God chose the materials that were going to be used. That God also di- dictated um, the garments, how the services were to be. Um, that God really, everything concerning the sanctuary, God had told them the directions in which everything had to go. And so, that yes, they should have known better. And it kind of just reminds me of when expectations have been set and you know what is required, you know exactly what you need to do. And when you go against that, by default, there is consequences. And I guess, especially the sanctuary, when we look at it, um, it was a model, it was a beautiful model that God designed in a way to teach transgressors their way and how God is trying to restore them. Um, in Psalm 77, I believe, and verse 13, the Bible says that way your God is in the sanctuary. The sanctuary was to show how God deals with sin and the sinner, um, how God saves you and I. The sanctuary taught us, or it still tells us today, um, it taught us about the high priest and the work they did. And the work that was done in the sanctuary on earth represents the work that is done in the sanctuary in heaven that is done by Jesus. And so Mm. when you and I, when we look at the sanctuary that was here on earth, we can learn what Christ is doing in the sanctuary above. Because the sanctuary down here was a representation of the one above. Mm. So, you know, and when it says that way or God is in the sanctuary, it's actually saying the way, the path, the road or the map to God is through this thing called a, the sanctuary. And um, it was, yeah, it's, 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 it's one of those models and that even today we're still trying to grasp our head around. And unfortunately, many people don't even have an idea what that is. Um, can you kind of briefly talk to us uh, through what it actually is and what it looks like? So the sanctuary was made up of two compartments. You had the holy place and the most holy place. And the sanctuary was surrounded by a courtyard. And this Mm. courtyard, or at least the borders of this courtyard, were defined by linen curtains. White linen. linen, which Which were suspended in space by hooks from brass pillars. And the entrance to the sanctuary was in the east. That's how you entered into it. And when you enter the sanctuary, uh, the first article of furniture you saw in the courtyard Mm. was the altar of burnt sacrifice. And then you came to the laver. And then we enter the first compartment. In the north, I believe, was the table of showbread. Mm -hmm. And in the south was the seven-branch candlestick. And then you move up a little Mm -hmm. bit further east was the altar of incense. And that's what made up the... That bit to the west. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Uh, and then there was a veil separating the holy place from the most holy place. And in the most holy place, that was where God was going to dwell. The, in the most holy place was the ark, and it was covered by a mercy seat. And there were two angels... It's made of pure yeah, gold. Yeah, made of pure gold. Um, yes. And there were two angels... 
on both ends of the mercy seat. And right there in the middle was where God's presence dwelt in the sanctuary on earth. Discovers the Shekinah glory of mm. God. You know, even in the, in the Ark of the Covenant itself, you had the three things in there. Yes. And uh, you had the Ten Commandments. Um, you had the pot of manna. You also have Aaron's rod that budded. Like, it's like there's an order. Mm. Um, and I think from there we kind of get a picture of how, God, how orderly God mm. is. And God worked with us in, in making the sanctuary. Uh, and I can imagine, you know, he ordered that they should use silver, silver, brass, and gold, and also blue, purple, and scarlet. So it was a very, I imagine it was a very uh, impressive structure to be in and to behold. It's royalty, isn't it? Hmm. Um, so, Tuck, you've... You've studied architecture for three years at the Montfort. Yes. Um, give us some insight into the modeling and how you got about even constructing structures. Like, what's that whole process about? I mean, we just, I just look at buildings. I'm like, wow, that's a nice structure. But somebody like you probably look at it from a different point of view. Um, try to describe to us what kind of structures and how you come up with and like the measurements and, mm. you know, all of that stuff. Like, it's a kind of different world, really. Uh, the way you come up with a building is you think about the client or more specifically, you, you, the body is your reference to the building. Um, so the body determines the spaces you make. The body determines. Um, and that's the human body. Yeah, that's the, so that's the human body. Um, mm. So you, the body is constantly the, your reference in making the building. You know, you need doors for people to enter through. You need stairs mm. for people to ascend and descend. You need windows mm. to allow sunlight. Um, so the body is your reference when making the building. Um, right. So you're sort of thinking the building through the body, uh, through the habits of the people that will dwell in that. That's how um, you come up with, with the designs for architecture. But that's just the idea in a nutshell. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. And, and I guess, you know, in, in other words... God is the ultimate creator. Of course, he he makes sure these things are there because he can't violate his own health laws. Mm. Uh, he yes. has to make sure that things are not appropriately ordered. So mm. you can even tell that God was so specific when he gave them the, the, the requirements or the measurements. Mm. I mean, when God is kind of telling Moses about the whole building. And God actually tells him who should build it. Mm. And God gives the skill to build it too. Mm. Um, God equips them with the skills necessary to do the, the embroidery that was in, that was part right. of the sanctuary and to make all the articles of furniture that we, that we see there. Mm. And I guess when we look at the model, it's like everything to do the sanctuary, everything had a purpose because it came from God, no matter how big or small. And everything by concept actually had this, I don't know how to describe it, but it had um, holiness attached to it. Um, are there good reasons for this? Everything connected with the sanctuary was sacred in, and holy. In Exodus 30, verse 28, we see that um, the vessels, it says, That's that thou shalt sanctify them, that they may be most holy, and whatsoever touch them shall be holy. And also in the same, in verse 30, we see that Aaron's sons were to be consecrated 
and anointed. And in Exodus 40 verse 9 it says, And thou shalt take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle, and all that is therein, and hallow it, and all the vessels thereof, and it shall be holy. Mm-hmm. And Exodus 29 verse 37 it says, Seven days thou shalt make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and it shall be an altar most holy. Whatsoever toucheth the altar shall be holy. Mm. And so we see that the people, the priests were to be holy, their garments they were to be holy, that the articles of furniture in the sanctuary were to be holy. Right. I think the compartments, the sanctuary itself, God's presence, made it holy Mm. Um, so we see that everything connected with the sanctuary was sacred and I guess we can kind of understand why Um, I think they were partly punished for their disobedience but also for the lack of reverence Mm. for bringing common fire to a sanctuary and services where everything connected to them was sacred and holy interesting you said that because even God through the sanctuary, or rather the sanctuary message or the picture or the blueprint, um, God was trying to have a holy people. Hmm. Wasn't a fire that God approved of. I think in Leviticus 16, we see that there was a, in Leviticus 16 verse 12, for the censors, they were to take fire from the altar before the Lord. And so the fire that was they, they, they used doesn't seem like it was the sacred fire from the altar that God had provided. Right. And this was their greatest sin. Mm. And um, we also see that God in Leviticus 10 verse 2, um, that God essentially kills them. Nadab and Abihu, they had been honored to go into the mountain and see God's glory when he called Moses and the 70 elders of Israel. Mm-hmm. But despite all this, and despite being in significant positions their positions didn't make up for their for their disobedience mm. um, that although they were in very significant positions in the nation that didn't make up for their disobedience mm. no. i mean they were priests before god mm. very and you know position i mean that's a powerful point because position doesn't necessarily mean that we can't fall short of God. Like, it doesn't mean that we we are exempt from sin, shall I say. Mm. And just because you're a pastor, you're a you're an elder in the church, you're a youth leader, whatever you are, it doesn't mean that you're not going to get the same punishment, essentially. And Moses, he was used significantly by God. But we see that for the one wrong he did with the rock, that he didn't mm. get to enter Canaan. Right. And Moses and God had used Moses significantly in taking mm. the children of Israel from Egypt. Um, that Moses' life was full of, of obedience and he had a very prominent role in the mm. nation. But that still didn't excuse his sin. And I guess for us who God wants to use and is using, um, we ought to remember that just because God is using us doesn't mean doesn't excuse us from strictly mm. obeying his commands. Nedab and Abihu um, 
were not the only people who transgressed and they were killed. Um, you know, in number 16, we have Korah um, rebelling against Moses and Aaron's leadership. Um, but most interestingly, we have, um, who else do we have? We have Uzzah, I believe. Yes, we can find that story in Second Samuel chapter 6. Verse 1 goes on to say, Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Geber, and Uzzah and Ahio, sons, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Geber, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Maybe we can jump down to verse 6. And it says, And when they came to Nahon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. Verse 9, And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? I mean, every time I read this story, um, you have this man, his name is Uzzah and Oaho, the sons of Abinadab. The, the Ark of God is clearly being captured by the Philistines. David and his mighty men, 30,000, they've gone to get it and they're bringing it back. And it's a rejoicing day. It's a glorious day. The Ark of God is back. And, um, and you have these guys bringing it. Surely they are doing a good thing. And then they're getting some some kind of hiccups, you know, and the, and the act gets slanted. And I don't know about you, but my immediate response when something's about to fall is to put my hands and, uh, and block it or and stop it from falling. Because if it falls, then it might get destroyed or whatever else. But, and that's exactly thing what happens. Why does God kill him? He's trying to do a good thing, right? He is. But I think Numbers 4 verse 15 will help us, which tells us how the ark was to be handled, who was to handle it, and what we were, what wasn't to be done concerning the ark. So Numbers mm. 4 verse 15 says, And when Aaron and his sons have made an end of the covering, the sanctuary, and all the vessels of the sanctuary, as the camp is to set forward after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch it. They shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. These are the burdens of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation. So here we see that only the sons of Aaron, only Aaron and his sons, could touch the, the articles of furniture when they were uncovered. Mm. That anyone else wasn't allowed to touch it, lest they die. And Uzzah, in touching the ark, directly disobeys this command. Well, verse 7 is actually really interesting because and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God smoked him there for his error and there he died by the ark of God. Like, 
I don't know, but I'm just kind of thinking that whole thing, that whole experience, he's trying to prevent something bad from happening. He's trying to do his best and out of impulse, out of literally caring so much, um, he does something that he should never have done. I mean, in that moment, you think, man, surely God could have been merciful. Surely God could have just been just, there's, there's kind of like a justification for that. But we see that whatever God has said, God has said it. And anything short of that, unfortunately, God have to act. Um, not that he's angry or that he's, he's violent or tyrant, but God has a standard. And even we follow shorter standard, though we know best, um, we still have to face the consequences because what God has said must come out. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting because there's a lot of people who kind of see God as a tyrant and they think, oh yeah, God is just either to kill everybody. But actually, that is not the case. Like, what is going on? Yeah, the ark, the ark was most holy. Coming back to the sanctuary, the ark was in the most holy place where God's presence was. Mm. And, you know, in the most holy place, the high priest was only allowed to go in there once a year at the end of the year. He couldn't go in at all times lest he die. Mm. This is where mm. God dwelt, uh, the most holy place. So it was a most holy item in the sanctuary. Mm. And I guess it tells us why God is so particular when it comes to this. I mean, God destroyed, or rather, um, killed Nedab and Abihu for, for literally profaning things that God has made holy. Yeah, and although right now we're talking about the sacred things in the sanctuary, we can still learn lessons from here. You know, the way God treats those who have irreverence for the holy things, that's still God's character today. Mm -hmm. In Malachi, we read that God doesn't change. Mm -hmm. Although there isn't a sanctuary on earth anymore, we aren't offering sacrifices. I think the character that we see here depicted in these two stories we just read about how God treats, about how God has a respect, a value for reference things. I think that character is still true for God today. God mm -hmm. has reverence, or God expects us to show reverence and respect for the holy things today. I remember in my past experiences how little reverence I had for things that are holy. You know, I remember making jokes concerning scripture or using scripture to make jokes. And I remember also being in church and not really listening to the preacher, but speaking about things that shouldn't have been talked about in church. Uh, I remember that sometimes I'd be on my phone while I was in church. You know, maybe I'd be checking up videos that are being posted on Facebook, videos on Instagram, things that weren't good for my thoughts or things that didn't help me in that moment to focus on the man that God was using up front on the pulpit. Um, that one time we were busy having an argument in church. 
uh, me and a friend on our phones, we were busy texting back and forth. He was, I was on one side of the church, he was on the other side. But this was during the sermon and we were having an argument on our phones. Uh, and looking back now, that was quite a lot of disrespect for God and the person he was using that day. Our attention wasn't focused on anything, but the words were exchanging. Um, some of them were very nice words. And when God showed me his character in the Old Testament, or when, I, when he taught me through the way he dealt with this native in Abihu, Uzzah, and other stories in the Testament, in the Old Testament, I saw the value that he has for sacred things. And I saw that I was very far from the standard, far from the amount of respect that I should have for a, a God who's great and holy. And since learning these lessons, I think it's been a journey educating myself to not want to to not want to fall short of reverence. I think it's hard sometimes when other people, when you have to sort of turn down conversations on Sabbath that aren't holy. Uh, I think you can, this, there were times where I felt extreme, um, times where I was uncomfortable, or something that I, that I hadn't educated myself to do. But it's been a rewarding thing to reverence God to turn away people who want to start conversations that aren't holy, um, to be able to encourage each other to a path where we have the reverence for holy things that we ought to have. In the Old Testament, we see that there was some lack of reverence for holy things. And I think that's still true today, where sometimes there isn't much reverence for those things that are holy. Right. I think, take for example the church. The God's presence with us there makes that space holy. Mm -hmm. I think maybe we, we can. I think some two examples that I want us to look at about how people, what people were to do, or how they were to approach a holy God. And we can learn something about how ancient Israel was to approach a holy God. In Genesis 35, we see that Jacob, before going to Bethel to worship God, that he commanded the people to put away their strange gods, to be clean, change their garments, you know, to take off their earrings. And we see also in Exodus 19 that God also told the people before he came down to Mount Sinai. He says that they should be sanctified. You know, they should wash their garments and they ought to come to him in fear, in, in reverence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, that sort of reverence is lacking today, mm. where we come into the church and don't recognize that we're in the presence of a holy God. Right. Uh, and I think our demeanor our attitude, conversations mm. uh, don't really testify that we're in the presence of a holy God sometimes. 
when we look at it really um, there's been a lot of things that are happening within the church especially with with us young people and there's cases where pornography is being viewed in church during services going on um, I've seen an experience once in another church I'm not going to say with the place but um, the young person or the young people rather were watching um, football while the preacher was preaching um, people going online um, looking at the latest I don't know shoes or they're shopping online while in church um, so we've kind of really lost the reverenceness um, in the in a place or in an atmosphere where the presence of God should be with us hmm. maybe we don't have the perception of God that we ought to have the mm. perception of his greatness of his holiness of his justice mm. but I think in the Old Testament in the stories we've seen we see that that God wants strict he wants us to reverence those things that are sacred mm. and I think something that can help us in our worship spaces to come in with reverence is to remind ourselves that God is present with us though unseen that he's with us that mm. his angels are around us and I think mm. this this more more awareness of the unseen of God is present being there uh, would inspire reverence in us and what makes something holy or sacred and uh, I think with Moses' example in Exodus, where he approached the burning bush, mm -hmm. you know, and God says, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. Mm. And in the story, we can learn that that space became holy because of God's presence in it. Interesting you mentioned that because the ground is dirty. There's nothing clean about the place. There's probably mud over there. There's probably bits of grass and leaves or whatever's there. Mm. Like outside the presence of God, the place is just an ordinary place, but God's presence being there, by default, that place becomes holy. And I guess, you know, even our bodies, when the Holy Spirit comes into our bodies, we become holy. And as you were talking about the surroundings that Moses would have had in that place, I thought about an experience I had at West, when Westminster Abbey. Uh, a very big church. <laughs> right, right. Um, and you know, when you go in there, it almost feels like a museum. That <laughs> um, the scale of everything is so... It's not human scale. It's very large. It's vast, yes. Um, but I think the reverence in there isn't commanded by our awareness of God, but by the space, the materials. Mm. Um, so it's not really God himself an awareness of God calling us to reverence, but the atmosphere that's created in the scales that it's built in the materials that are used. And I think there is a danger there. Because um, I wonder if the, those people have the same reverence if they're worshipping in a barn. Mm. So I think God's presence can be there too. Mm. And why do you think there's a lack of reverence within the church today? I think because... I think sometimes at the foreground of our minds, we see the forbearance of God, his loving, his lovingness, that mm. we forget the justice of God. That's sort of in, right. in the background somewhere there. Mm. Like we want to see God as beautiful, portraying him in this character. You know, we want to, uh, yeah, God is loving. 
but we don't talk about the wrath of God on the other side. Like the wrath of God. Oh no, the wrath of God. No, I don't want to. But God, we have to look at God as the entirety. Mm. Um, God is a God of love. Yes, yes. But it's also God of justice and mercy. And um, sometimes God have to do certain things. Mm. And I think sometimes we forget. We want to look at a good God, but we don't really want to deal with the other God. Um, well, with the other attributes of God, dealing with the wrath of God and all that. Um, it's not really in its true sense. And in the Old Testament, this, this isn't hidden away from us. We see it. That God wants strict obedience to his commands and your respect for those things that are sacred. And um, so, Tak, you know, we, we're talking about the church. And if we're honest, really, if we're really honest, the only time we ever really meet a church is on the Sabbath, or rather the church building itself um, is on the Sabbath which is to some degree a shame because the body of believers should always be together. But this is, this is the time that we, that we really meet. The Bible really talks about in Exodus 20, the, 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 the commandments rather expresses that the Sabbath is a holy day. Um, it's not a common day. It's not like Monday, Tuesday. It's a different day. And, uh, and that's because the presence of God, I guess, is um, on that day as well. Not to say it's not on all the other days, but um, there's an extra special blessing on the Sabbath as we saw from Genesis chapter 2. Um, but what is so special about the Sabbath? Like, why can't you do different, like, why can't you treat the Sabbath like an everyday? I think in Genesis, we see that God set it apart, that he hallowed it, mm -hmm. that he made it a special day. It was different than the other days before it. You know, and he said in Exodus 20, um, that the work in the common days but in the seventh day it's a day of rest to remember god and his creation and to think of his loving kindness and goodness um, so it's a separate day i think when we treat it as, as a common day we aren't reverencing that which god has set apart and sanctified and we aren't obeying the his requirements for that day and we see that principle transcending in the New Testament, you know, we have Jesus when he came, um, he kept the Sabbath. You know, the Bible says that it was custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28, the Sabbath was made for man and no man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Um, we have the apostles also keeping the Sabbath. Like, it literally goes all the way. We see how the value God had for this day in Numbers 15, verse 32, or in Numbers chapter 15, we read the story of a man that was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Uh, this man was doing what he should have done in the common days on God's sacred day. And when he was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath, you know, he was brought to Moses and all the congregation. And, you know, God says this man should be put to death. And as a result of that act of disobedience on God's sacred day, uh, he's stoned to death and he dies. I think we've talked about the things that were sacred and things that were common in the Old Testament. Right. And we've really seen the value God has for those things that are sacred. We've seen it in the sanctuary, in his Sabbath, in the way we approach him. 
the way we treat things that are sacred, things that are common. Mm-hmm. And in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, Paul, looking at the stories in the Old Testament, says, Now these things happen unto them for end samples, and they are written for admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Yes. And so you are, we can learn the lessons from those stories in the Old Testament. Maybe we haven't been reverencing the things that are holy today. Maybe we've acted the way we want in God's house. Maybe we haven't reverenced his word. Maybe we talked about his word and making jokes about it. Mm. Maybe whatever holy thing we've, we haven't had respect for, there is still hope for us. We can learn the lessons to grow reverence for those things that are sacred. And in 1 John 1 verse 9 we read that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You've just heard our latest show on The Deep Podcast with your host, Ethan. Stay tuned for our next episode or jump back to a previous episode. Subscribe to our channel on iTunes, Spotify, and Anchor. You can also find us on your favorite social media platform on Instagram and Facebook at The Deep Podcast. So be sure to like, comment, and share. Until next time, this is The Deep Podcast.